0: I am so excited to have Andrew Deman with me here to talk about margins, comics, um, gosh, even s- sexuality, pornography in comics, uh, kind of really controversial topics. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Andrew, you um, are their professor uh, at Waterloo at St. Jerome's. And um, before you got there, you had a journey um, getting your, you know, into comics can you share that with us
1: sure um i I mean i read them when i was maybe 14 15 years old uh and i'm from thunder bay where getting comics is real hard (laughs) and it's very much like a um, dig through the bins hope to get lucky trade people that kind of stuff enterprise uh and then i i stopped reading for whatever reason and boxed them up uh until i was in phd school Uh, at the University of Waterloo where I was um, um, an American poetry expert doing really good winning scholarships and just bored out of my mind Uh, and I was going to quit I was just like I can't do this there's there's nothing here I care about and I went home for Thanksgiving and I came out and I dug out my my comic book collection and I got kind of excited about it and I I went back literally that Monday and asked around uh, um, our graduate coordinator and that kind of thing if I could do a project on comics. And they said, there's not really a lot to draw from there. And sure, you can try. So I, I tried uh, <laughs> and we sort of made it work.
0: And who did you, was there someone there that tuck, you sort of tucked under the wing of? How did, Or did you just carve this path for yourself?
1: No, we, we, we had one professor who um, was like a comics reader. <laughs> Uh, and he was willing to take me on uh, so long as I was kind of doing the the, the lion's share of the work. Um, and I brought on um, another professor who was an expert on um, otherness, uh, which was an important element of my dissertation, looking at otherness as a concept in um, comics and particularly the comics as literature movement.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. Let me ask you this, Andrew, to kind of push you a little bit. Do you, do you think that your training as someone who maybe your formalist training in reading and analyzing poetry was a skill set that allowed you to go places in your comic studies that you might not have otherwise gone.
1: Yeah. I think there's a weird counterintuitive element to it. I don't know if you found this, but like when you're trained to sort of, as you said, formalist, maybe structuralist even, um, especially my undergrad, I I think you start to see the parts more and, and how they work as the whole. And I think, for me, one of the big revelations was McLeod's, uh, in understanding comics, where he specifically connects the mechanics of language to the mechanics of craftsmanship. Um, so for me that opened the door and suggested that I, I could be an English major, uh, again, like, like poetry as a specialization and, um, sort of apply that formalist logic to comics in a way that wasn't, um, um, counterintuitive or decontextualizing them too much. Um, but I, I have, rampant insecurity about my ability to analyze visuals. Uh, And as much as I've tried to catch up, I I became an expert in visual semiotics just to to have sort of that academic discipline to draw from. Mm. Um, I always find myself apologizing to my students and saying, you know, I wish I could say more uh, about the choices that the artist is making here
0: right so yeah really interesting um, in fact you know Roland Barthes plays a big kind of role it seems in uh, the margins of comics the book that you published in 2015 um yeah a nice kind of maybe a gentle way to move from kind of literary study into comic study right Roland Barth, maybe
1: yeah I think so um for me, it was a, a sort of merger of um, Bart and um, 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 Edward Said, in principle, in generalist principle. Not so much the specific elements of Said's Orientalism, um, but that idea of creating mythologies for the specific purposes that Said sort of articulates in Orientalism—that that political motivation, that insecurity, that kind of thing—and uh, as I said, for me, it was about how that insecurity drove the comics of literature movement, the extent to which. Comics artists in the 90s, particularly like the sort of underground, um, how they were specifically addressing the way that comics had othered in the past um, and trying to recontextualize it in some cases, but, but definitely going right at it and actually making some of the best graphic novels of that era out of this sort of revisionism. Um, which I thought was really interesting. And I said, Bart gave me a good kind of grammar to approach that. And then Saeed gave me um, that, that political angle to a greater extent than I think Bart alone could have provided.
0: Really fascinating. You know, looking at the kind of phrase margins of comics to me at first glance, first hearing of it does sound a bit like a tautology, but I am saying that as a kind of way to, you know, gently ask you to go into this sort of study that you did that I know is really important.
1: Yeah, so I think it's, I waver on tautology. Um, I like the idea that you have this this sort of form and content that that places the emphasis on um, action in the margins. Uh, and how that um, reader response drives things to a great degree, particularly when that that reader is someone who is participating in the culture of comics, which, as I said, has a rich tradition of um, sexism, misogyny, racism. Uh, I mean, a lot of people forget the American comic strip was basically built on racism as the punchline. But like every time, (laughs) and people didn't really get tired of it. Uh, The connection between cartooning and minstrelsy, as articulated by even just like Chris Ware, kind of informally, Um, is is sort of legendary. Uh, So for me, what I ended up doing was kind of um, dividing them into three processes of othering by no means equivalent processes. Uh, But the way that comics treat um, women historically and how that had to be addressed in the 90s, the way that comics have treated racial minorities and how that had to be addressed in the 1990s. uh, And the sort of underlying one that I think had not really come up in scholarship very much, if at all, um, was the relationship that comics have with the um, geek group or demographic um, subculture whatever you want to call it which was seeing a transition in the 90s moving from um, an out group to an in group so sort of positioning those as not equivalent obviously but as um, operating from the same mythology building perspective the same othering perspective uh, and seeing what we can get in juxtaposition just as comics work through that you know um, motivated juxtaposition that was my goal <laughs> it was it, it was a big project
0: yeah really important project um, I have a couple of images that you talk about in your book here up on, on the screen for us all to look at. Um, is there something here with any of these that you might kind of just um, talk us through for a couple of seconds or a minute? Sure.
1: Uh, so let's maybe go to It Ain't Me, Babe. Um, so this is sort of a, a landmark comics anthology um, that that very much grew directly out of Crum's underground comics. Uh, um I don't know, I don't want to say commune, but (laughs) group or collective. Uh, And what it was is it was supposed to address all the problems of um, um, women being excluded from that underground movement and maybe even mainstream comics in general. Um, Their target is a little hard to track sometimes. But what ended up happening is their approach was a little, I don't want to say simplistic, but it was generalist. They were pushing towards the same moral or same message. Um, What uh, Aline Kaminsky Crumb refers to as, um, quote, idealized goddess bullshit, uh, end quote, Um, which led to a sort of um, fracture off that group, uh, which gave us um, um, a new branch of alternative comics where the subject wasn't how women are goddesses. The subject was just like life as being a woman. Uh, and it resulted in, again, a greater sort of complexity and consideration, very much falling into the alternative comics vibe in contrast to like the traditional underground comics vibe. Uh, and I'm um, reconfiguring the idea of women as neither goddess nor like sexual trophy, just as people, which in theory was always the goal. But the, that initial attempt, I, I think, in the eyes of a lot of readers and a lot of practitioners fell short. Uh, of that precisely because of this commitment to a mythology that was um, weirdly dehumanizing, even as they were attempting to humanize. Um, so that was a, a, an important um, um, piece for me. And I know that's been a, a, a big element of other people's work uh, as well, uh, tracking that transition from underground to alternative comics.
0: You know, Andrew, not to put you on the spot here, but what do you think um, within your sort of framework of understanding um, constructions, margins, uh, canons, why is it that for so long, um, you know, there was a kind of holy trinity of comics studies, comics teaching in and around Mouse, Persepolis, and Fun Home, for instance?
1: Yeah, I I think... um I don't know if I can make a really strange academic analogy. Uh, we compare this to like essentialist portrayals of homosexuality in media, uh, where the perception is that we know from a lot of data that like sexuality is fluid, um, but there's a sort of like political trade-off. There's a, a value to essentialism right now, uh, even though this creates a schism in, in queer studies. Uh, if we that, or, sorry, filter that over to comics, comics wanted legitimacy. Uh, in the 1980s and 1990s and here was this ready-made media narrative which was again utter bs which said class of 86 the big three and meanwhile the brothers hernandez are holding up their hands and neil gaiman is holding up his hand and everybody's like no you don't fit into that narrative
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, and i'm working on chris claremont right now and if you look Mm -hmm. at early comic scholarship Mm -hmm. he's there he's mentioned Mm -hmm. and then we commit to that narrative of the big three and he's not 1986, right? He, he didn't debut in 1986. He didn't do his masterpiece in 1986. Um, so he gets left out. So I think a lot of this comes from, uh, again, this, this weird contextual history of insecurity uh, mm. in comic studies as a field. And there's a value to it. Uh, being able to teach the big three makes, I don't know, a, a simple narrative that an undergrad class can understand. Um, but it's by no means accurate.
0: Right. Yeah, I love that. And I love your phrase and concept of this sort of conceptual insecurity and the kind of, you know, what it constructs as a result. Or, you know, um, yeah. Why is this, speaking of uh, X-Men, the greatest X-Men cover, Andrew? (laughs) Uh,
1: This is a blog post I'd forgotten I wrote um, maybe five years ago. So for me, what makes Claremont special is a lot of factors, uh, amongst them luck, right? Just just having 16 years to work on his pro- book, his project, he's got a giant canvas and after a while he gets bored uh, and that, that takes him out of a lot of the typical comics cliches uh, that we're used to. So what you're seeing in this, this image right here is one of the major transition points. This is where Paul Smith comes on, uh, who is a very um, um, soft, pretty clear line, um, very humanistic artist. Um, The thing that I always point out as like his greatest achievement, which is sad because I'm being stupid. Uh, He draws clothes, uh, which nobody does in superhero comics, right? Mm -hmm. They just do tights. But anyway, um, so what you're seeing here is sort of a a key transition point in X-Men that ended up being a key transition point in the superhero in general, emphasizing more human stories. So that's the one element. Uh, This is also a great comic story. This is Professor Xavier is a jerk as the title, which is kind of legendary uh, and beautiful. Uh, and this is Kitty Pride, a absolutely pioneering uh, um, female protagonist in comics. One who was neither presented as a visual sexual object, mm. um, nor sort of dismissed uh, as a character. And I think that the pose you see in this image really emphasizes that. I, I realize it's a vulnerable pose, but it, it's a hero pose. It's, it's, her back is against the wall. She looks messed up. She, mm. she doesn't look pretty. They, they allow her to be injured and scratched mm. and scuffed and her hair is out of place. These are things that are sort of are, are contrary to the traditional, traditional superhero narrative. Uh, and you know she's going to do something superheroic and awesome. And then you simplify it and it's a female character on the cover of the best-selling superhero comic in the world, neither presented as, again, a trophy or as something precious. Wow. Uh, so you got a lot of things happening in this like, really kind of simple image. <laughs> I, I just love that about it.
0: Yeah, I love it, and thank you for walking us through that um, kind of spectacular reading of this cover. That's both historically kind of contextualizing and also uh, very beautifully formalist. Um, tell me um, <laughs> here too about you know your your take on Harley Quinn, Volume Three, Issue Eight.
1: Uh this was so I've been I've been Claremont for 3 years like like nonstop. Yeah. And I had this idea because the Harley Quinn series was out and it was really good and I was enjoying it. Uh and I was reading some Harley Quinn comics. And I had this idea I was going to propose for a paper and I couldn't do it. I didn't have time. But I told a friend about it and, and she's like, "Yeah, we should write that." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." Um so I got sucked into this by my my co-author, um Laura Grafton. Uh, So what we have here is a really cool piece of like decades of comics continuity intersecting uh, at at like a flashpoint. So this is one issue. All it is, is um, Harley and Ivy go on a vacation in the Bahamas. Uh, But what's at play, the central narrative tension is this burgeoning relationship with Ivy. Um, A really important canonical queer representation thing, because we do have queer characters in comics, but Harley Quinn is an enormous intellectual property. Um, So this would be big. Mm. Uh, and um, it, it's about her having to get over her relationship with the Joker. Uh, and that's, again, kind of a, a problematic thing in comics because, uh, as you know, um, Harley is often characterized as this um, um, abusive relationship, romanticized kind of Sid and Nancy thing. Mm-hmm. And that's not comfortable. And the weird thing is, she wasn't ever really that. Like you go back to 93, 94. Um, she was revised in um, Mad Love, this legendary book by um, Paul Dini and Bruce Timm. Uh, and for whatever reason, people still think of her as the Joker's girlfriend. She, she's not. She hasn't been. So anyway, the, you, you have that history really being addressed. And it's really cool to see that level of, of comics continuity come into play. Uh, and then um, 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 we posited it as three sexual relationships. Um, intersecting so that you've got the Joker relationship and the trauma that that entails. You've got this healthier relationship with Ivy and this important representational relationship. And then the third element is the relationship between Harley and the reader, which is also sexual, uh, as you can see clearly from the illustration, The sort of cheesecake elements of it. Uh, And that's something that's kind of fun to discuss as a um, not love triangle, but like love square, I guess just how those relationships with the reader can become, um, Uh, important and um, contribute to the actual canonical relationships that the character is intersecting with. So we were trying to draw on history context and um, a a little bit of just how people read sexy female characters in comics and how those um, attitudes and perspectives can actually mirror some of the abusive elements that you see in Harvey's relationship to the Joker Uh, and, and how respecting her relationship to Ivy is moving beyond that.
0: Andrew, um, I want to sign up for all of the classes that you teach on comics. (laughs) Uh, Really incredible the way you've been walking me through this and our audience here. Um, How how do you teach comics there at the University of Waterloo, St. Jerome? It's a a tough sell
1: sometimes, uh, as you know. Um, I I think for me, one of the main approaches is, uh, again, to account for that visual element as best as we can. So we know that just like from your high school curriculum, your public school curriculum, that we've been trained in language, this this abstract code for conservatively a thousand hours of our lives, right? How to read and write. And in terms of the visual language, we have next to nothing for training. Uh, again, McLeod's subtitle is The Invisible Art. So I really try to emphasize that. Uh, I try to emphasize um, layouts, all, all all that kind of thing, but for... An unapprenticed audience, I think the best way I can come at it is more simply, just sort of like what choices do you see on this page? What choices did the artist make? How would it work if it had been done differently? Um, I try to integrate some creator element as well. So like I'll have them draw me a graphic narrative uh, of their lives. That's fine. And I explain to them, I don't care about your talent uh, visually or aesthetically. I'm interested in the choices you're making and the logic behind them. Uh, And then sometimes we'll do things like a a little bit more creative as well. We'll build a historical context. Um, We'll have um, sort of in-class assignments, thinking about how the panel is configured and all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's, it's a whole lot of like borrowing from other fields, you know, Um, cinema, semiotics, uh, narrative, fine arts, painting, caricature, everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so you end up being kind of a mediator uh, as an instructor, I think. But I mean, as you would know as well, like, the enthusiasm for it is great and and having engaged students kind of having their eyes opened to how cool this medium is for the first time is so much
0: fun absolutely i completely agree um uh, so you do so much beyond or outside the classroom and your your book uh your books your articles can you tell us kind of you know a little bit about that space that you've been working so actively in uh, yeah I, I think
1: so so I think this works more on the superhero comic side than on the um, alternative comic side, uh, which does have more of a foot in traditional kind of literary culture. Um, but when you're on that superhero side you've got this really rich passion culture surrounding comics and comics collectorship and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's something we can leverage as scholars, uh, and we all do it. Already in some way, like if you're writing an article on X-Men, you're probably on Uncanny X-Men.net looking stuff up and stuff like that. Uh, and that's that's a rich database, uh, crowdsourced. That community and culture you can interact with in, in, in a big way is kind of great. Um, so with the CSSC, that was we knew we needed to build um, a, an academic society in Canada uh, devoted to comic scholars. That was six people when it started in the basement of U of T. Uh, and all of them have gone on to be kind of awesome scholars. Uh, and now we're like a 80 member society, which is great. We have wonderful conferences. Um, Ink Alter Ego Exposed, that was just fun. Uh, <laughs> being able to be a talking head in a documentary was, was a cool experience. Um, my blogging, which has largely stopped since I'm microblogging through the Claremont account now. Mm. um again just trying to connect the academic perspective to the public perspective because it would be really weird for i think the academic perspective on comics to just gloss over that history and all the work that has been crowdsourced by comics fans over a hundred years realistically um so i'm just trying to connect those two bodies i guess
0: yeah yeah absolutely connect these two bodies um also you know you and i both know this that as scholars, you know, we are absolutely required to be on our tippy toes best shape because, well, especially superhero comics, we in the universities in the ivory towers aren't the specialists. It's actually the the folks out there reading and who've been reading uh comics, superhero comics forever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: again, it's such a such a wealth
0: that's available. available. Yeah, it's a sort of organic archive, living breathing archive of scholars, right, that are and they'll set us straight if we don't get it right. Um I am I really want to know about comics and passion and pornography with purpose as the title of your TEDx is.
1: Yeah, that was sort of the start of my shift into um um looking at sexuality in comics specifically, which has become a thing. I, I've published, I think three articles in the last couple of years on the subject. Uh, and um, uh, 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 I'm teaching a course right now, like like an experimental course called um, graphic sexuality, the history of sexuality in comics. So I was really interested in what that medium has to say and what it can do in terms of sexuality. And th- this all started with lost girls, um, which um, myself and a few others have referred to as meta pornography. So it's, it's, it's a treatise on pornography, right? Alan Moore's work. he's, Talking about pornography, excuse me, but he, he's doing it in a work of pornography, uh, and, and that layering effect is really critical to what Lost Girls does in terms of not allowing us to intellectualize the concept entirely. Uh, like famously, his his greatest quote, uh, where he gives you the moral, of the story by um, uh, Monsieur Berger, uh, is constantly interrupted by him talking about the orgy therein. So if you want to like cut and paste it. And, and teach it in a class, you've got all these orgy elements in between, unless you like selectively edit them out. Moore didn't want you to be able to, to intellectualize. Uh, so that got me started. And then thinking about just um, the role that comics has played in sort of contextual history of sexuality and the way we represent sexuality and the way that sexuality as a concept has defined comics. Something as simple as um, the underground comics movement and the way that they use sexuality to declare their rebel nature, their deviance from the norm and their... Um, um, Sort of response to the comics code, their their, their angry response, and how that evolved into something much more sophisticated once we get into the alternative comics movement where we're starting to explore sexuality as a subject because we can, because we've created this space where sexuality is expected. uh, And thus, um, comics doing amazing things on the subject of sexuality. Uh, So I I think that that's really what I was kind of interested in. um, How comics have taken advantage of that space, how they've created that space, and where that's taken the um, underground and alternative comics movement.
0: So Uh, is is there a line for you, Andrew, um, to be drawn, or or is it a line drawn in sand between pornography and erotica and kind of impassioned, passionate visuality in comics? Um,
1: this is something we've talked about in my class. Um, No, there isn't a clear definition or distinction between erotica and pornography. It's it's just not. Um, For me, it boils down to um, individual subjective sense of ethics and perspective. There are things that are objectively wrong. Uh, I I told my students that that I I disagree with with Moore's assessment in Lost Girls that uh, only the madman and the magistrate can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, And I think if you sexualize certain things, you can create sort of bad social notions. And I think that's really clear just in something like the treatment of women in superhero comics, uh, which can sort of um, internalize this cultural idea uh, of what a woman is. Like if if you grow up reading comic books, what you think a woman is, is radically wrong. Um, So again, I think it's individualized. I don't try to moralize. I, I, I tell them they're free to land wherever they want. Um, but I do think there are standards at play that should be at least considered, um, but they're not generalized or broad enough for me to say what's right
0: and what's wrong, for, for me to draw the line personally. Right, right. And we saw that dramatically done uh, pre-Comics Code and yeah. then <laughs> Comics Code, right? Um, so you've already mentioned this a little bit, but I want to hear about like this crazy big research program, project, data, project that Claremont run?
1: This has been cool. I've really enjoyed this project. Um, so, yeah, as I said, my, my, my first comic I ever bought was Claremont. It, it was X-Men. Uh, I've been fascinated by it ever since. Um, so what I recognized when I was putting this project together is that it is the largest sample available of a superhero comic writer consecutively writing books. Um, Stan Lee never wrote anything more than 10 years. Claremont wrote X-Men for 16 Uh, So what that meant to me was that it was open to um, big data, data analysis, content analysis. Uh, So the first thing we did was um, we got approval. We got some funding. We got some research assistants who could like go and count stuff, right? Uh, Simple things like number of narrative captions, um, different characters, thought bubbles, but then also action-based stuff. So like I can tell you um, uh, how many people Psylocke has killed. Uh, over the course of the Claremont run. Uh, I can tell you how many times Wolverine has surrendered, Uh, how many times a character has had their clothing torn, Um, all things that can lead us to sort of better conclusions because a lot of the ways that we analyze comics are, um, again, coming from kind of a narrative perspective. We're interpreting elements without hard data to go on. We wanted to have a big data project. Uh, So we gathered just a ton of data, uh, and we're now into the sort of analysis phase of it. Um, and then the other component was we were going to do micro publishing, which I don't know if you've heard of, uh, which is just, um, publishing very small ideas over social media. So each day on the Claremont run Twitter account, we'll publish uh, like a graph, a chart, uh, or an interpretation or some historical context. Um, but something that would be like, okay, this is the goal. I don't, I don't, I don't achieve this at all. Um, the goal was each day we would publish something that you could make a published paper out of an idea. Um, and we've been holding that up daily for uh, four months at this point, point. Uh, and then prior to that, publishing um, maybe—oops, I shook—maybe uh, like three times a week, uh, and thus engaging and dialoguing with that X Men con, that that, that X Men culture in uh, group, and scholars and creators uh, of X Men comics, all having giant conversations, which is cool.
0: I think there must be something up in the water in Canada that, you know, drives you guys to do big data projects, BART, <laughs> yeah. BD, you, BIN, uh, wow, yeah. Um and then of course the one thing that you guys have that the United States doesn't have, um, but also, but that Europe does have in some countries is um like research funding for this kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> I know. It's awesome. I love it. Ah um, oh, this Andrew, this is a very short, quick kind of unzipping of your brain and allowing us inviting us into your journey. Professor Andrew Demon from the University of Waterloo, St. Jerome. Thank you for sharing with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.